Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of That Digipod. As you know, my name is Depesh. I'm a digital product owner here at BT and your host for this session. Now, today's episode is a really amazing one because I'm joined by one of the world's most esteemed product experts, the godfather of products himself, <laughs> author of books, empowered and inspired, Mr. Marty Kagan. Marty, welcome to That Digipod. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. And you've just come off a big 90 minute talk with a digital team at BT. How did you find it? Well, they're the ones you should ask uh, <laughs> to see uh, how they're doing. But we had a lot of good questions covering a very broad range of questions, topics. So I thought that was great. Yeah, definitely. And I'll, one thing that really sort of stood out to me right at the beginning of the presentation was the emphasis on coaching. And um, I've recently just done an episode um, specifically on coaching uh, a few months ago, and that was really eye-opening for me, something which I never really thought of um, before. And you mentioned something called a coaching culture, which I thought was a an amazing um, term, but I'd like to know from you, what kind of habits can people pick up to help create a coaching culture within organizations? Well, this is one that really is, it's just a choice. It's just a yeah. choice on how it's not, a lot of other things are a lot harder to do, but this is a choice. In truth, in most companies, it's a, it's, it's a choice from the top. Um, in other words, the, the leaders of the company say, you know, we are going to invest in our people for real. We're going to invest in them. That's our future. That's where these great things come from. That's how we take care of our customers. So it's a choice. Uh, and that choice means that managers have to spend real time on coaching. So that's the difference. The manifestation of that choice is spending time on coaching, spending time. I was taught that as a manager, my primary job was to coach and develop my people. So I, that was a, I, I learned product and learned engineering in a coaching culture. Um, they, they believed that from the founders, literally, which in my case were Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard, literally the yeah. founders yeah. of Hewlett HP. And um, I remember, in fact, I was, you know, they started the company a long time ago, but I was a brand new engineer. And I remember sitting at my cube and one day this big tall guy comes in and just his, says hi and mind if I sit down. And I recognized that this was literally Dave Packard, the co-founder of the company. And he was, he was just, he was still the board chairman, I think, but he wasn't actively at the company, but yeah, I'm like, sure. And I'm like, he introduces himself and he, he says, yeah, we have a management practice here called MBWA, management by wandering around. It's literally what it stands for. And he said, and I was in your building and, you know, it, it was early in the morning and I was working and he was there. And he said, so I thought, like, said, what are you working on? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm doing research on a new programming language. And here's an, you know, here's why it's a good thing. And he was super interested uh, and it, it, he was there for about 15 minutes and he wasn't there to critique anything. He was just there to kind of learn. And he, um, he asked me, I remember he asked me if I visited any customers lately and I had. And so he said, well, what did you learn at that customer? And he said, well, 
you know, that I've been there myself. That was, you know, that's pretty amazing place. And he said, this is my favorite customer. If you ever get a chance to visit this company, you really should. They're amazing. And so it was just part of the culture, but you can see where that comes from. Yeah, for, uh, for sure. And it sounds like he was genuinely interested in what you were doing and like how again how important was that to you at, at that time you know you're new to the business but this person is now just coming talking to you like he would talk to um sort of anyone there was it was no it didn't sound like it was hierarchical or anything Not like that all. and it sounds like businesses yeah that's maybe the way to way to go for leaders to come and like have just general chats with people and see what they're up to absolutely this is how you stay in touch this is and you know there's just I mean, if you think about, first of all, it was very motivating. And, yeah. um, but it also like, I learned so much from what he said. I learned that he cared about customers. <laughs> he yeah. really did. He knew them. <laughs> he knew, I don't even know how many he knew personally, but he knew them. He knew what their pains were. And he knew the places that, that would be amazing for me to see. And he wasn't, he was a trained as a mechanical engineer, not a software engineer, but he didn't care. He's like, you're building stuff. I build stuff. This is great. So, um, yeah, I think, I think you learn, it's amazing how much that helps. Yeah, definitely. And would you say he was sort of one of the sort of early mentors in your, in your career? Well, I, I, I literally had that uh, one other interaction with him over my 10 years, which he, he took my, my team that I was on out for a cheeseburger one day, he stopped by and invited our team to come along. But that was the most that was the interaction. So uh, it wasn't enough to qualify as a mentor. I would say, though, he was a very inspirational figure. And he, um, I think he, he, he created a culture which at the time was an amazing culture. And I, I genuinely believe that company would have would still be thriving if he was still the leader. But um, but that's what happens, unfortunately. The leaders, in his case, pass away, and um, and different kinds of leaders come on board, and companies' cultures change. And and unfortunately, uh, it's no secret what happened to HP. It's nothing like yeah. what it was when I worked there. No, for sure. And how do you how do companies embed that good culture, even when people are people are going? How can you keep a um a good a good morale, a good high performing culture, even when people are sort of chopping and changing? Because you're right, people do leave and they do yeah. go and do other stuff. How can the core foundations of a business um, stay true and honest to um, what has originally been built? Well, I think it's that, so he was very careful, I think, when he chose his successor. And the board was careful in for several successors to kind of have that culture. And it was a very strong engineering-driven culture. Um, the board, several years later, made an intentional change to bring in a different kind of CEO. Uh, now, in hindsight, that was obviously a very big mistake. But at the time, they thought it was a good thing to do. So that was an intentional change of culture. Engineers had a very different role after that. It, it, used, it was very much an engineering-centric culture, and then it moved to a marketing-centric culture. That was a choice, though. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's it's something that I know a lot of businesses um, will certainly 
struggle with um, today embedding a culture. Uh, we in the digital team have been working very hard. Now we're a bigger unit to um, have a good culture. We have a set of digital principles. We call it the digital way. And this is something that we really try to get people to, um, you know, address and like be be a part of to, um, you know, create that a good culture amongst loads of different areas. Um, I want to just talk to you a little bit about um, creating a a, a safe a sort of a safe space because a, a lots of times in businesses uh when the pressure is on Martin, as you can imagine um sometimes processes uh get thrown away i know you've talked a lot about um agile before and you almost when businesses are put under a lot of strain and a lot of pressure and you know things trickle down to maybe the product manager and it sort of just gets something done how can businesses um stay true to um keeping their own ways of working, uh, that good high standard of, say, product behavior, even when pressure is uh, pressure is on. Yeah, um, one of my favorite leaders is Ben Horowitz. He and he like he's written a great couple of fantastic books, uh, and one of them ta he talks about the idea between being a wartime CEO and a peacetime CEO, and that you're sort of describing something very similar. When things get rough, do you throw everything out? And his argument is, and I believe that, that in a tech-powered product company, we always have to be in wartime. We always have to be. Now, telcos in fairness are one of the last places uh, where we often have protected industry. <laughs> So um, I, I don't think, I, I do believe that's changing and, and is going to continue to change. But, you know, telcos have been, a, been able to get away with very little change for a long time. But it's happened in every other industry. And I think it's going to happen to telcos too. So uh, to me, it's about developing the wartime skills. That's not a great analogy. Obviously, it's not really battle, but it is, you know, what that means is, really working effectively to solve real problems. If, if when you have a competitor that really wants to provide your customers with much better solutions, you can't mess around. Yeah. I know it's, 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 um, it's definitely something that a lot of businesses are probably looking at and trying to just keep that, keep that ship steady a little bit, right? When things do get rough, the waters are a little bit uh, shaky and um, you're right, it's down to the people at the end of the day, you have to um, change that mentality in, in that mindset. But this is the time for you to build those skills because if, if once you've got those strong competitors, it's probably too late. Yeah. For sure. And Marty, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, product teams now. So whenever a new team gets um, spun up, uh, you know, often the product manager will try and, um, you know, figure out the problem statements, but also put their stamp on the team itself, their own personality, uh, shall we say. And I had a really interesting chat with um a guy called Jake Humphrey and Damien Hughes, probably about a year ago, they, they did a podcast called the High Performance Podcast, and they talked about their uh, non-negotiables, behaviors that they don't compromise on or high-performing athletes or uh, visionaries don't compromise on and something that they don't change within themselves. And it really got me thinking about, okay, what would my non-negotiables be if I could lay these out? But my question to you is, if you 
had your own set of non-negotiables uh, when you go into um, businesses, what would they be? Well, yeah, um, it's kind of complicated. There are, uh, I mean, the non-negotiable on a product team are the skills. You know, you, you either have the skills or you don't have the skills. Um, there are some other less tangible non-negotiables like ethical behavior, things like that. Those are non-negotiables. But normally, that's just a different way of framing it. We would, you know, we're looking for a strong team that, which means they have the skills and basically they can all have their own unique personalities. We love that. The more diverse, better, because better decisions will made. The only thing that's really non-negotiable is not to be an asshole because you know, <laughs> that breaks the, the trust inside the team. But I don't like to draw too many, uh, I don't like to emphasize too much on the individual's personalities because we like it to be different. And we, we really do genuinely love diversity. There's great data that shows diversity generates better innovative solutions. So we want people to be different. We want them to have different educations, different life experiences, different everything. We just want to make sure that everybody is, you know, decent to each other so that we don't, you know, like Google calls it psychological safety. Yeah. We want, we want everybody to feel and to truly be a valued member of the team. So yeah, I don't put too much emphasis on the individual personalities. Love all the different kinds of personalities out there. Cool. And I want to talk a little bit about measures of success. Um, I've watched a lot of your talks where you talk about uh, OKRs. We mentioned it a little bit briefly in the uh, session that we uh, just just had um, with the digital team. Um, OKRs themselves, I know, can be uh, very subjective to a lot of uh, people and if they're done right it's uh, really amazing and I know that you've said that you know they're okay but now potentially you wouldn't be surprised if a long time down the road something better um, comes along and I just want to know what are your thoughts on um, OKRs? I mean the, the problem is the most companies using OKRs have no business using OKRs. Okay. Just no business because OKRs were created around this idea of empowered product teams. And when you're a feature team company and you layer on OKRs, it's just a recipe for a mess. And that's the problem. So obviously if uh, the, it's, it's, it's been oversold to places that really have no business doing it. So uh, I would say a company needs to first get the important things uh, done important things done first before they uh they move to okrs nice and if you could give any advice um to product managers then who are sort of starting out and wanting to um progress their careers like um you did maybe all those years ago or like more more people like me or even anyone uh, really who's just starting out in their product um career to become uh, what we call a world-class products person um what would be the key values that they would need well yeah that's a big one um i mean obviously the foundation table stakes is putting in the work to be able to learn the things you need to learn um, there are a lot of people out there that 
that really don't understand just how much effort is required for that role. And, you know, I talked in the, in the discussion about the difference between a product owner and a product manager. Uh, product owner is an easy job time-wise. Product manager is not an easy job. Uh, so they need to understand the difference and know what they're getting into. Um, if they understand that um, and are willing to put that effort in, uh, it's a great job for sure. It's a great job, but a lot of people don't. And their manager should be the ones really helping them with that. And there's often cultural differences. For example, I mentioned the quote from Jeff Bezos that we need, we need people that think like owners, not like employees. Now he goes on in that quote and says, and the best way to do that is to make them an owner, give them stock. But, you know, that's very common. That's the norm in Silicon Valley. But in a lot of Europe, it's not. It's the exception. So uh, how do you get somebody to think like an, and act like an owner when they're not? So there are other ways for sure we can do it. But those are the kinds of things we really want to work on. That's so cool. We have uh, one of the uh, principles at BT where we say BT is mine. Think of BT as being yours. And then you are more, you're more empowered than you think to make uh, decisions. Yeah. And um, I, that, that's one of my favorite, uh, favorite sayings um, for sure. And um, we talked a little bit about products there and you mentioned a few big companies that you've sort of been involved uh, with. What's been sort of the favorite products that you've seen uh, come to light that you've sort of been involved in? What have been sort of the key innovations? Oh, to be honest, there's way too many of them. I literally, this, <laughs> this summer, I hit 40 years doing tech products. So wow. there's thousands of products. Um, I, I do have a lot of favorites all around the world. I, um, I wrote about one of my favorites because one of the things I often hear, and, um, and I think this is relevant, is can we change if we're an old company? You know, and BT's got to wonder about that. I don't even know what year it was founded, but it was probably 18 something. I love a long time 18 ago. something. 18 wow. Yeah, quite a long time. <laughs> Wow. Well, the oldest company I know of is actually The Guardian, which was founded in 1821. Wow. Uh, and they just, you know, last year was their um, 200th year anniversary. And so I don't know anybody older than that. That's like they survived all these world wars and everything. But they, um, but the internet just about killed them. And they got, they had to get good skills in, in tech and product. And uh, one of their, I mean, they developed some really great technology and products that really, in my, that combined with amazing journalism saved them. Uh, but, and they're still around and they're bigger than ever right now. So this is great. But that team, that, first of all, they built the, uh, what Apple, people at Apple considered the best single news app in the world. So that's good. But what really amazed me is because they did so well doing a native mobile app for news, they were personally invited by, uh, by Apple and Steve Jobs in particular to create a new app for the iPad, the iPad's debut. They were given seven weeks to create an all new app on an all new device. 
Uh, And what was amazing is they had built the skills to be able to do that. So how many 200-year-old companies do you know? How many 20-year-old companies do you know that could do an all-new app, all-new device, seven weeks? Uh, And not only was it uh, a great device, but it... um, for everybody that bought an iPad for the first year, almost all of them installed that app. So it was incredibly successful for them. So it was called Eyewitness. And um, yeah, Apple loved it. They featured it on stage. It was just a beautiful job. So to me, what it, what it means to be a great product company is to be able to take advantage of opportunities like that. And yeah, even yeah. in fairness, I know a lot of quite good companies and product that couldn't have done that in seven weeks. No, and that is an astonishing, uh, astonishing turnaround in, in seven weeks. But it does give everyone a little bit of hope and say, if someone like that can do it, then, you know, been around for a long time, then, you know, what's stopping anyone else from, you know, really, really having a look at that. So um, just before we close off, Martin, it's been an absolutely great chat i really enjoyed it i want to know your your esteemed career as you said you've um you know 40 years within within the industries you've um obviously had a lot of lessons learned and something i like to ask everyone that comes on to digipod is if you could um talk about your main lessons that you've learned throughout your career even if you pick a couple what would what really stands out in your mind well, the reason that's hard is because I feel like I've learned a lot every single year, just um, and the rate of learning seems to be increasing rather than not, just because I think I, as you spend more time in the industry, you start realizing what's important and what's not, and really, I think, getting better. Um, probably to me, though, the most important learning I had that really I think marked a uh, inflection point in my own career is, uh, and I'm admitting a, a flaw here really, but early on I was, I believed that I was right way more than I really was. Uh, and I, I actually even worse, I believed that I was supposed to be right as you know, as a leader, as a product manager, I was supposed to be the one with the right answer. And I remember it was actually the co-founder of Netscape, Mark Andreessen, who finally got it through my head. He argued to me that the most important thing in tech product is to know what you can't know. And he's like, so, you know, he would ask me things and he'd say, how could you know that? You can, nobody can know that. It's not possible to know that. Not until we go experiment, not until we go try this. And, you know, he's like, he's really right. Uh, <laughs> and it fundamentally changed my approach. And I, because if you, if you would know what you don't know and admit what you don't know, <laughs> you can get to work and learn those things. And I, that was a real turning point in my career. I got much better at, instead of thinking I had to have the answer, I got much better at knowing how to go get the answer. And I I really think that's, that was, that was key for me. 
that's that's amazing a lot of people are going to be listening to this and hopefully a light bulb will switch on in their heads and um have that same mindset as you marty um unfortunately that is all we have time for in today's uh digipod so uh marty i just want to say a massive thank you so much for coming on uh, to digipod and hopefully you'll come back for a longer session one day down the road sounds good i hope it was useful thank you <laughs>